You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. We are uh, in the fifth week now of our uh, study of the life of David. And I think one of the things that you'll see this morning is that David spends a lot of his life on the run. He is uh, a man who is well acquainted, if we can say it this way, with sorrow. And not just sorrow, but suffering and strife. And David will find himself in between a rock and a hard place. Andrea read for us from 1 Samuel chapter 23, and actually the story begins a few verses before that in in 1 Samuel chapter 22. If you've got your Bibles, you can look up to that, but it begins in verse 6, and what happens is, is that David's been on the run, and Saul's been pursuing him, and Saul is actually, as a character in the story, he's going to move from bad to worse. So in verse 6 of chapter 22, he opens up uh, sitting under a tamarisk tree. Uh, Johnny Russell referred to this last week towards the end of his sermon. And he's sitting under a tamarisk tree, and he's got a, a spear in his hand, and he's seething with anger, and he's, and he's paranoid, and he's clinging to his kingship by the skin of his teeth. And because he's ruling, he's ruling out of fear and conspiracy and The way he seeks to persuade others, you find out in verse 7 of chapter 22, is through fear and and power. He tells the people, he says, listen, if you want a successful life, if if you want a better life, I can offer that to you. David, David can't. See, I'm I'm the king. That's what Saul's saying. I mean, you get the sense that if he says it long enough, people will believe him. Maybe he'll believe it himself. But he's angry about a conspiracy. And you might say, okay, well, what what exactly is the conspiracy that we're talking about here? Well, the conspiracy is simply this. It's a conspiracy of friendship between Jonathan and David. In in Saul's jealousy and in his rage, it's, it's made him believe that the relationship between Jonathan and David is about him, and then that Jonathan's trying to overthrow his father, and that David's trying to start a coup. And, and what, what you see is that Saul absolutely misses. He cannot see the love of his son Jonathan. Not, he can't see the love that Jonathan has for him. He, he can't see the grief that Jonathan is experiencing because he's watching his father spiral out of control and run away from God. It, it is amazing what the people closest to us notice about us. And yet, running from God has this blinding effect. Look, Love and, and care and concern that those closest to us show, we interpret it as a threat and we seek to silence it or worse, like Saul, to destroy it. See, instead of seeking counsel from God, um, Saul's going to seek his own counsel. He, he's going to 
take his own advice. He's going to devise his own plans. And because Saul has run from God, Saul is left with nothing else but himself as his own God. Well, in chapter 22, in the verses 9 through 16, what you see, you discover what it is that Saul's so angry about this time. There's a guy named Doeg, the Edomite, and he reports, he says to Saul, he says, hey, listen, I saw David. I know where he is or where he was. He was with the priests in Nob. It's this Levitical city, priestly city. And when he was there, the priests, they gave him food. They prayed to God for him and and gave him Goliath's sword. And Saul, in verse 11, says, oh, yeah? Well, bring me that priest immediately. In, In fact, bring all the priests to me. So the priests are part of the conspiracy now. Maybe even Saul sees God himself as conspiring against him. Let me say this. Being on the run from God, maybe you are this morning. But being on the run from God, you will quickly lose sight of what is real. See, see there's no real threat to Saul. That, not, not from Jonathan, not from David. I mean, Saul's the king. Nobody's trying to overthrow him. And in Saul's mind, he believes that that's reality. I mean, running from God, not only do you lose sight of what's real, you lose sight of what is absolutely true. See, Saul had set himself against God. And so, because of that, I mean, God's out to get me and... and and then I'll, I'll show him. I mean, Saul's a unique case, of course. I mean, you read the account of Saul, the life of Saul, you realize he probably never really trusted God at all. He always, in some sense, believed that God was out to get him. But let me say this this morning. I think as believers, I think it is easy to get caught up in and lose sight of what is real and what is true. I think a lot of believers get into a place and they go, you know what, God's out to get me, God's against me. I knew it all all along. Here's the truth we need to be reminded of this morning. It comes from Romans 8. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is left to condemn? So Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who's interceding for us, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? It goes on, nothing separates you. See, we we lose sight of that truth. We begin to think, oh, God's out to, to get us. Well, what happens is, is so the, the priests come to Saul. He 
sins for him from now becomes a, a, a Himalek. He's the, the main priest there. And, and all the other priests come. And, and Saul begins to question him and says, Hey, well, what's this treachery that you've committed? And Ahimelech, in verses 12 through 16, says, Treachery? That conspir- I don't know what you're talking about. I mean, oh, oh, you mean, you mean when I was taking care of David? The guy who's your son-in-law and the captain of your guard and the guy who's honored in your house? I mean, you, you mean that guy? And so uh, says, well, you heard it. There it is. I've heard enough. You're going to die. And in the verses that follow after that, what Saul does is he commands his servants to slaughter the priests right there. There's 80, 84, 85 of them. The servants won't do it. I mean, they're like, Saul, you've got to be crazy. I mean, these are, these are God's men. We can't do that. But Doeg the Edomite, he's there. He says, well, I can do it. And so the priests are slaughtered right there. Then what he does is he sends him to Nob, the, the town that all the priests had come from. And you know what he does there? He slaughters everybody in the town. The text tells us the women and the children and the, and the infants, everything. You ever heard of burning bridges? Saul has dropped a nuclear bomb on that bridge. And he will be consumed in the fallout. Well, there's one priest that escapes all of that. His name's Abiathar, and he escapes to David. He survives that, that holocaust, and David offers him safety. And then, and then the story picks up at the beginning of chapter 23. Now they told David, behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and robbing the threshing floors. The, the Philistines, the, the bad Philistines, the, the foil of the story, the the, the, the enemy of, of all the Israelites, they've come upon this Israel, Israelite town of, of Keilah and, and they're, and they're um, attacking the people and they're robbing all of their stuff. They're taking their grain. They're taking their food. Saul's their king. But he's too distracted by what's not real to notice the threats that are real. Now, notice with me here. Beginning in chapter 23, verse 2. David is going to inquire of the Lord. And he asks God, he says to God, should I go attack the Philistines? And God tells him, yeah, go and attack the Philistines. And so David goes to his men, all these, you know, we find out there's 600 of us. God said we need to go and we need to defend Keilah. We need to go attack the Philistines and get the stuff that they took back. Now, the men, in verse 3, we find out they are they're absolutely afraid. And it must have been bad. Because these aren't the kind of people that were usually scared of anything. But I mean, Saul's on one side, he's hunting them down. You've got the Philistines on the other side. They, they always prove to be a difficult enemy. I mean, they're... David and his men, I mean, they're in this position that nobody wants them. I mean, they're outlaws, they're enemies. So he tells the men, we're going to go. And they say, we don't want to go. We're afraid. 
So David goes and he prays again in verse 4, and God says, go, I will deliver them into your hands. And so in verse 5, what you see is that David goes in the face of fear, in the in face of impossibility, with scared people by his side, David is going to trust God. And then look at verse 6 real quick. When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David, to Keilah, He'd come down with an ephod in his hand. Think about it like a, um, like a vest you wore or, or a, like a holy shirt kind of a thing, all right? Decorated. Now remember that for a minute and we're going to come back to it. In, in set, verses 7 and through 14, here's what happens. Um, uh, Saul finds out that David is in Keilah. The... the the news of David's victory against the Philistines has reached the ears of Saul. And in verse 7, notice what he says. Now, it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah. And Saul said, you notice what he said? God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. Saul's response, it's not, oh, thank goodness the people of Keilah are saved. I may not like David, but I mean, thank goodness for him. That's not his response. No, what Saul says is, huh, look, God has given David into my hands. You could write out to the side if you wanted to, um, Saul is a super villain. In fact, if you want to do something really fun, you can go home today. If you have a, uh, one of those Amazon devices in your home, you know, the government listens to everything you say through. Um, and you can tell Alexa, you can say to Alexa, hey, Alexa, pretend to be a supervillain. All right, don't forget to do this. I mean, pretend to be a supervillain is the funniest thing you're ever going to hear after that. And she ends with this, you know, whoa, ha, 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 you know, this evil laugh. I'd do it, but then you'd all you'd be doing is making fun of me the rest of the sermon in your mind. But it's hilarious. This is, abs- I mean, it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy, I tell you. I mean, God has delivered the Philistines into David's hands. Saul believes God's delivered David into his hands. We said Saul's Bible study methods are lacking. Okay? I mean, what Saul's doing is, Saul is attributing his own desires, his own schemes, his own craziness to God's work. Which makes me want to pause and say to you this morning, how how discerning are you when you hear people say, well, God, God told me to do this. This is my word from the Lord. And, and, and what happens is, it, it, I'll tell you how it manifests itself in the 21st century, in 2017 or 2018. Now, here's how it manifests itself. We have a social media religion filled with all kinds of things out there that supposedly God has said. I mean, it's, it's not enough that we have a bumper sticker religion. It's now all over social media. I mean, to, to, 
find the most extreme of examples, and, and yet it almost doesn't make the case because they're subtle in so many ways. But did you hear Gloria Copeland? This I don't usually call people out, but the news did, and it's crazy. She said, don't, don't get a flu shot. Jesus is your flu shot. N- no, the flu shot's the flu shot. And you're likely going to get the flu. I mean, so, listen, there are crazy people that say crazy stuff. And they attribute it to God. How discerning are you? Just because it sounds good doesn't mean it is good or right. See, war from the bad guys, from the Philistines, that had just been averted. David won the war being waged against Keilah. In verse 8, Saul now, Saul is going to wage a war on Keilah. Keilah is in Saul's crosshairs. I mean, you can imagine if Saul heard about David's victory in Keilah, then the word had spread to Keilah about Saul's slaughter of all the people in Nob. Well, what happens is, to take the story forward, Saul, uh, David is going to seek God again. In verse 9, look at what it says. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him, and he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod here. We'll talk about that in a sec. Then David said in verse 10, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me to his, into his hand? Now just think about that question for a minute. David has just come and saved the people of Keilah. And yet he's worried enough to say, God, are the, are the people that... You know, these people that I just saved, are they going to hand me over to Saul? Well, in verse 11, God says, yes, Saul is coming after you. In verse 12, he says, yes, the men of Keilah are going to hand you over. David's just saved them. Saul is a threat to them. They're going to side with Saul. If you want to know, why would they do that? Here's the very simple theological answer. They're people. That's what people do. See, I want you to get the scene here. David has enemies from the outside. The Philistines, they hadn't forgotten about him. David has enemies from the inside. Saul is pursuing him. People that he saved are betraying him. I mean, you talk about being between a rock and a hard place. And you say, well, wait a minute. That's not fair. I mean, David's God's man here. I mean, how could God let this happen to David? I mean, David's supposed to be the king. He was anointed by Samuel. He was, I mean, he's the chosen youngest son of Jesse. He, this isn't supposed to happen to David. I mean, there is suffering from every side, literally. And David's going to have to go on the run. And listen, being on the run where David was going and 
into the wilderness and into the caves. It's not comfortable. There's nothing luxurious about it. He goes into hiding. And David's life seems to be going from bad to worse. Or is it? Can we talk about this for a minute? Is David's life going from bad to worse? So, so notice, here's what David has. While there is suffering on every side, while he is on the run, while this is something no one would choose or desire, listen to what David does have. He has God. He is an intimate, prayerful, experiencing His presence, relationship with God. God is David's protector. Nothing is coming into David's life without first going through the hands of God. I mean, no matter what the suffering looks like or what it feels like, David's not alone. He's not forgotten. And more importantly, David, in these moments, in these chapters, is fully dependent upon God. You know where David gets in trouble? When he's not on the run anymore. When life's comfortable and it's springtime, and we'll get there. But let me ask you this question, and I want you to think about it. I want you to answer it in your mind. What does being in the center of God's will look like? What do you think it looks like? I mean, how would you answer that? Being in the center of God's will. I mean, how do you answer that? What is your criteria for being in the center? I mean, the dead center of God's will. What's your criteria for that? If it is related to comfort and ease and money in the bank and no problems and no suffering and no disrespect and no trouble in any of my relationships, then maybe you're aiming at something that's not the center of God's will. Just maybe. Listen to what, this is, the, I've probably told you, this is the most difficult, one of the most difficult verses for me in all the Bible. Paul will say in Philippians 1.29, listen to this. For it has been granted to you, the word is, is grace, it, graciously granted. It's been graciously given to you. Listen to how he says it. It has been graciously given. It, it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should, two things, not only believe in Him as though hey, that's really great. It's been granted to you to believe in Jesus Christ for His sake. I mean, that's pretty great. But not just that. I mean, as though that's going to be the second thing. He's going to now elevate and say, not only to believe in Him, but also, but also, you know what it says? To suffer for His sake. 
And that's one of those verses that you want to, I want to, like highlight with a Sharpie marker, you know? Just go verse 28 on to the next one. I, we've just been graciously granted. Graciously granted that I would suffer. I think it's one of the hardest and most glorious verses in the Bible. How about this one? No, in all these things, we're more than conquerors through Him. This is Romans 8. For I'm sure... Now, think about why he would say this. Why is Paul writing this? I'm sure neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything in all creation is able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. All those things, none of it can separate you. How about this one? He'll say this a few verses before. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed in us. What does it mean to be in the center of God's will? See, I'm afraid we've somehow mistaken the American dream for the center of God's will. Remember Abiathar, the ephod, I told you to remember that, verse 6, verse six and verse 9. We might be tempted to say, you know, look at that and go, well, look, that's all nice and everything. You know, the, the priest comes with the ephod, you know, the holy prayer garment, and, and David has this, it seems, unparalleled access to God. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't have that. I don't seem to have that kind of access. Direct guidance. David gets direct. He asks a question. God answers a question. I, I mean, I don't have that. I'd say to you, I don't either. And I'd say also because I don't need it. I'm not the chosen king of Israel. I mean, it's okay with me that David is in the salvation history of God's plan, more crucial than my history, all right? I mean, the, the kingdom of Israel, of God's chosen people, rested far more on David's shoulders and his safety and preservation than mine. But let me say this. The principle is no different between this elect king, David, and myself, or David, and you. He, here's what we see in the context. It's, it's access to God through the mediation of a priest, a, a point, an appointed priest, Abiathar. Isn't that the same privilege you enjoy that I enjoy? I mean, even really to a much greater degree. I mean, we have a greater Abiathar. You know what Hebrews chapter 4 says? Since we have a great high priest, you know who that is? Jesus. We come to the throne of grace and find grace for help at just the right time. Listen, I would say that is infinitely better than knowing whether Saul is going to bring his men down to Keilah or not. Right? Well, 
I'm running out of time here. I know it shocks you. Uh, Jonathan's going to encourage David. There's this little scene here, 15 through 18. It's not very long. It's, it's a brief scene. David's on the run. He's hiding in the wilderness. Where all that is is fascinating. It's beyond the scope of this morning, though. But, but Jonathan's going to come to David. It's like this cool drink of water. I think what, what it is, is I think God is sending Jonathan to David, I mean, encouragement at just the right time. He's going to come to him and he's going to say, don't worry, David. This is all going to pass. I'm going to remind you, David, you're the, you're the king. And I'll be at your side. See, I don't think words can express what that does to a soul. I mean, not only is God's is God David's divine resource, and he is. But Jonathan becomes David's divine encouragement. You know, at Discover Bethel, if if you've been to Discover Bethel, you hear me talk about these three great resources we have as believers. We have God's Word as this great resource. I mean, as believers living on, on planet Earth during time and space and history, we have these resources God's given us. One of them is, is the very Word of God. That's why every time we're together, we open God's Word. We want to hear from God. It is this divine resource. We also have God's Spirit. As believers, after the resurrection, we have the Spirit of God, the, the Spirit of, of Christ that indwells us and, and gives us it is the spirit of sonship. It, it's, we, we cry out of a father because of it. And then I always say something like, you know, I try to be real cute or funny, and I say, yeah, third resource, I'd, you know, I'd pick a different third resource. I'd have picked angels because they're awesome. You know? Think about how popular Christianity would be if you got saved and then got an angel. I mean, evangelism would take care of itself, right? People say, I want an angel. Yeah, they're awesome. Not angels. You know what it is? We have God's Word. We have God's Spirit. We have God's people. And I always say, one reason that surprises me is because I know people. I am a people. See, Jonathan... When he comes to David, he's going to reaffirm God's promises. Jonathan's going to come with God's word to David. And Jonathan comes literally to fight for David's faith. Verse 16 says, And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh. And it said, listen to the phrase, strengthened his hand in God. He's fighting for his faith. He's going to battle for David. Listen, we need people to go to battle for us. We need people to go to battle for our faith when everything seems to be battling against us. And too often what happens is when that happens and everything's pressing in this side and pressing in on this side and I feel like I'm suffocating. And Too often what happens, people retreat. They go insular, as my good friend says. 
They turn inward and they shut people out. And it, it seems like the natural thing to do. Listen, it is not the thing to do. We need people to fight for our faith. Are you cultivating those relationships now? Listen, you need to be in a small group. You need a small group or a Sunday morning Bible study or a Tuesday morning Bible study or a Wednesday night Bible study or men, there's, there's men gathering almost every morning of the week from Bethel. Men and women, couples gathering together. You, you need to be, you, you need to know others and, and listen, you need to be known by others. And if you're not, there's a place waiting for you. If you don't know how to get connected, email me. My email is, is fritz at bethelbible.com. <laughs> You can email Fritz. You can email me, Ross at BethelBible.com. Don't do this alone anymore. Well, here's the end of the deal. Uh, I would say it's God's unusual, unpredictable, outrageous rescue. That's how I would call it. So David's on the run. In verse 24, he's, he, he's, he's on the run. He knows Saul's uh, on his heels, and, and Saul's closing in, and it's getting bad. It's getting really bad. And in verse 26... It says, Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain, and David was hurrying to get away from Saul. And as Saul and his men were closing in on David and his, and his men to capture them. So on one side, David on the other, David's running, he's, he's hurrying, and you can feel the, the anxiety building, and you might be tempted to shout out, run, David, Run! It's the author's intention. It's real. It's, it's desperate. One writer said it this way, sympathetic Bible readers close their eyes at this point. They refuse to watch the capture, the humiliation, and likely death. And then verse 27. It's almost like you hear the orchestra play, dun, dun, dun. A messenger came to Saul saying, hurry and come, the Philistines have made a raid against Israel. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore that place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of En Gedi. The messenger comes to Saul. It's the Philistines. Wait a minute. The Philistines? That's God's rescue plan? Listen to Dale Ralph Davis. He says, of course you can read this with blind, unbelieving eyes, babbling about how David can think his lucky stars that he eluded Saul or you can read it with the clear vision of faith, exulting in the endless variety of ways in which Yahweh delivers His servants 
laughing at the humor of it all. David, not for the last time accepting the Philistines as his personal Savior, marveling at Yahweh's timing and rejoicing that even Philistines can be pressed into the Lord's service. The rock of escape indeed. A suitable name for an unforgettable place. See, these verses teach us, I think, let me just wrap it up. They teach us about what God's providence means. The strange ways that God works to keep His people safe, firmly grasped in His sovereign hand. This isn't providence only for David. Some of you, some of us, we have stories to tell about how God's strange and outrageous and unpredictable, unbelievable providence has just shown up at the right time. In fact, David's going to write Psalm 54. I prayed that a little earlier. He's going to say, surely God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. Let me say it this way. Just because we do not see what God is doing does not mean that God is not doing. He's always doing. We walk by faith, not by sight. I think we spend too much of our Christian life trying and waiting and struggling to see God instead of trusting God. We spend too much time trying to, to see God. And so we're vulnerable to see what we want to see. We spend too much time trying to see God. And so we, we spend all our time trying to interpret our circumstances or read God's Word through our circumstances. and That's called eisegesis. It's called reading into God's Word. We are people who want to exegete. We want to interpret, interpret what God says and then Believe what God says. Looking into the hard places of Scripture and believing God. Staring down the hard places of our life and believe God. Where are you walking by sight in your life? In what ways are you demanding to see God? I argue they're the very places that you're probably missing him. But believe. Believe. And you might be outrageously surprised and shocked and dumbfounded what you then begin to see that he's doing. You remember the movie Polar Express, old movie? It's a Christmas movie if you'll indulge a Christmas conclusion and a Valentine's sermon. Happy Valentine's, by the way. The movie, early in the movie, you know, Tom Hanks plays the conductor and he says, you know, one thing about trains, doesn't matter where they're going, matters is deciding to get on. It's a good line. See, a little earlier in the movie, this boy, he was having a crisis of faith. I mean, he, he wants to believe. I mean, he's the He's the hero boy, you know. He, 
And he wants to believe, but he, but he can't believe because he's, he's never seen any evidence of Christmas being real. I mean, he knows about Christmas, knows people celebrate. He's never seen any evidence of Christmas being real. He's poor. He's never, never had a present. So even when he sees it, he doesn't believe it. The conductor will say to him, seeing's believing. But sometimes the most real things in the world are the things we can't see. The movie ends with another boy's thoughts. He says, at, at one time, most of my friends could hear the bell, the Christmas bell. But as the years passed, it went silent for them. Even Sarah found his sister one Christmas that she could no longer hear its sweet sound. But though I've grown old, the bell still rings for me, as it does for all who truly believe. We, we live by faith, not by sight. Here's how Paul says it, and I'll close with this. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. You might even translate it. We're pressed on all sides, but we're not crushed. We're pressed, but we're not suffocated. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that He, knowing that He who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us to you into His presence for, its, for your sake. So that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So don't lose heart. Though the outer self's wasting away, our inner self's being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal. What are you longing to look into? That which is most real can really only be seen by faith. If you would, would you bow with me? Father, I ask this morning that you would...